0: hello listeners and welcome to film is lit the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or television adaptation and your hosts are me
1: laura she (laughs) her
0: the literature expert
1: and danny the film expert pronouns he him (laughs) (laughs) This was Laura's first intro in a while. She was nervous.
0: (laughs) Pretty rusty. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You'd think it would get easier, but not for me. You can tell Danny's the performer of the couple.
1: (laughs) Who, me? (laughs) How could you come to that conclusion? Such a ham. Yeah. Ooh, ham. I'm hungry. Uh, Anyways, welcome to our coverage on the HBO show, Watchmen. This is part one of two. So HBO's series is nine episodes, and on this episode we are covering the first five episodes. And then part two, which comes out next week, will cover the remaining four. I have already seen the series once before. This is Laura's first time.
0: Yeah, I almost feel like There's enough here for me to have watched at least three times each episode. I'm almost frustrated that I, you know, didn't see this beforehand.
1: Yeah. There's just
0: so much to pick up. I feel like my coverage is gonna be less in depth than Danny's because Oh my gosh, there's so much to cover and I'm I'm not picking it up just because I've only seen it once.
1: But you are enjoying the show a lot. Oh my gosh. And you do recognize Yeah, the connections Yeah. To the source material,
0: it's so smart.
1: Yeah, David and Damon, Damon <laughs> Lindelof, yeah,
0: Landolakes.
1: Da- David Ortiz Landolakes wrote the show, <laughs> and Damon Lindelof. Yeah, he Damon Lindelof of Lost Fame and also of The Leftovers Fame. No, I didn't watch I um, films, yeah, but... he was the writer showrunner for those shows. And this was his kind of big resurgence because he broke out into stardom with Lost and then kind of was derided for the... Meandering.
0: Po- I know this Yeah,
1: meandering, Lost, polarizing so. final season or final few seasons, to be honest. And then he did a second draft on Prometheus, which Ridley Scott made into a movie that's also highly polarizing. Um, and then The Leftovers is amazing, but surprisingly not... A lot of people have seen that show i love that show but it didn't break out into pop culture like i thought it would um like
0: Watchmen. Has. yeah
1: yeah right exactly and so yeah this is damon lindelof's big resurgence he is now just an absolute superstar this limited series won 11 emmys it wow. it didn't sweep it didn't win everything was nominated for but it couldn't have because it was nominated multiple times in, Mm, you know, yeah. So yeah, in certain categories, but it won best outstanding limited series. We should get that out right away. Uh, for good reason. I love it.
0: 2018
1: or 19, 19. So the show came out in 2019. So in 2020, it won all the awards.
0: That's so funny that I keep thinking it's older than it is because it's not only popular because it's good, But they timed it to where it's a hundred years, almost to the day now that we're recording, of the 1921 Tulsa massacre. Yes. So it just, the timing of that was really smart. I'm not sure if that was planned like that, but it was really
1: smart. Right. And yeah, very relevant to today. Uh, It was relevant two years ago when it came out, when we were in the thick of uh, Trump's presidency. And yeah, very topical this show will be relevant for years to come. Because unfortunately, racism is sticking around. And yeah, this is something that we're dealing with as a country right now.
0: Well, and not only is it really popular because, you know, of all of the, its roots in the graphic novel and its coverage of very relevant racial topics today, But also, it really kicked off interest in the source material of the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. And it's actually helped, like, three or four documentaries be launched. Yes. Like, there are a few that just dropped on, like, PBS and CNN that were trying to get funds to be made for, like, years. And no one would pick them up. And I read this one quote that I thought was really interesting, that one director was told that it wouldn't pique the interest of white males from 35 to 55, mm-hmm. which is a huge overlap of the fan base for Watchmen. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons that that particular documentary was given funding. So like, it's finally you know, helping other people get this message out that's like that's such that's like a secondary success of the show is just people are talking about this historic incident that has been buried
1: right i very embarrassingly never knew about the tulsa massacre in 1921 it wasn't taught to me and i had great teachers and professors and in ap history it it still just didn't come up and that's a stain on my education for sure and I'm certainly embarrassed about it but even when I saw it in the show I'm like oh wow that's pretty violent that's a depressing way to open up um, your season and then I found out after the fact that it actually was a real event that happened and the show kind of downplayed the severity Mm -hmm. of things if you could believe that
0: well the thing that's interesting is that I know I learned about it, this is kind of getting into our journeys, but I remember learning about it at some point prior to 2019, and I think I might give credit to a Facebook page that I liked a long time ago, it's called Weird History, and they consistently post, you know, those listicles that are like, you know, 15 pictures you never saw in your US history class, stuff like that. And one of their articles was about the Tulsa Massacre. And I can't remember if that was the first time I heard about it when I clicked on that article, or if it was before that in a history class in school. But I actually went to, just out of curiosity, I went to a stack of textbooks and reference books and anthologies and stuff like that, that I have collected and I keep at my parents' house. And I searched under the index for keywords like Oklahoma and Tulsa and massacre and even race riot. Even though I, that's how it was branded. Yeah. Even though that's not the truth of what happened. And I could not find it. Yeah. And I checked five books because I, I tend to hoard... Um, Books. Reference well yeah <laughs> i mean that's fair but reference books i tend to hoard and keep and i i went back to five of them that i have and i could not find i they it might be in there mentioned yeah. somewhere but it did not appear in the index right so again i'm not quite not sure when i learned about it yeah not a good sign not quite sure how i learned about the massacre but it could have been sometime from that weird history so like that page on facebook cuz they have some good stuff
1: Nice shout out there. Well, yeah, that kind of goes, sets up your journey and i'm starting a new segment on this podcast called my journey's pretty short that's what laura usually says when we're talking about a book or movie that i choose (laughs) because when i choose a book or movie um it's usually the first time laura has has read it Um, but to be fair i don't read a lot in general so it's mostly my first time reading the book too and i'd seen the movie in the past but yeah so this is your first time watching through the show again you've we've seen through episode five and laura does not know what happens in the remaining four episodes i am not going to spoil anything on this podcast of the remaining four episodes also if laura asks any questions (laughs) about the remaining four episodes i will not answer them
0: right i might do a little bit of speculating because i have some ideas of where things are going right but danny and i were sitting at a coffee shop the other day and i said a couple things and i he's like i don't know i don't know and i was like (laughs) come on i just want to know yeah
1: so for all the listeners out there if you're currently watching the show we are going to spoil episodes one through five we are not going to touch the remaining four so that's kind of the structure of this podcast we're going to go episode by episode talk about it a little bit before we do that Talk about my journey. So I saw this when it came out in twenty nineteen. It, it you
0: now what now now it is kind of ringing a bell, you watching it. Was it right at the beginning of the pandemic or when did it re watching it during the pandemic? No,
1: no, so it was the so the end the tail end of twenty nineteen, I mm-hmm. think September through December.
0: Okay. I, I vaguely remember going into our room to do other stuff while you had your TV time.
1: Because I <laughs> My <laughs> we personal have, little TV we time. Have, we have
0: separate times of the day sometimes. <laughs> Set uh-huh. periods of time where we get breaks from each other. But I think you assumed it would be too violent and dark.
1: Or and so I you, also assumed you just wouldn't have any interest. Right,
0: yeah. So so I would go and like read and do something in our room, and then Danny would have the living room. and um, I Yeah, I mean... I'm glad you screened it, but at the same time, I think I, I would have really enjoyed, you know, watching yeah. it with you, well, it's, every episode, is, there's like bombshell. This
1: is an incredible series. Watching it again, it might be one of my favorite uh, limited series of mm-hmm. all time. Yeah. It is everything from the acting to the writing the my writing. gosh the oh writing we'll talk about that but to the cinematography to the score which is by trent Reznor oh and atticus God. ross aka the nine inch best, nails
0: yeah, the best composers
1: <laughs> they're they're the best modern composers next to uh, nicholas bertel who, we, yes. who we've talked about before yes. but they're completely different from nicholas bertel's style by the yeah. way which is nice and I just love, Nine Inch Nails is one of my favorite bands ever. I credit my older brothers for introducing me to them. Uh, I'm not a fan. I, I know, they're a little <laughs> hardcore for you, but um, some of their hits are, are are nice. But yeah, they've moved on to scoring movies. Well, I shouldn't say move on. They still release music, mm-hmm. uh, to, which is insane that they have a full career composing scores for film and tv and then they also are just a band a regular band i mean i don't know how they have the time to do anything but they won the oscar in 2011 for the social network which one of the best scores of all time it's a shame that that score was up against hans zimmer for inception another one of the most memorable scores of all time as well so they won in 2011 and then they just won again recently for scoring uh, the pixar movie soul which they collaborated with john baptiste with so they they shared the award there but their score for this i mean just makes the show it
0: drives everything this incredible the
1: show is incredible on its own for all the technical elements and the acting and the story and just everything but the score elevates it to a new level. You always hear that the best score shouldn't be noticeable. It should, you know, enhance the movie you're watching. I say BS to that. Some I of the agree. some of the best scores are loud and in your face and they draw attention to themselves whilst you're also watching and being absorbed by the content.
0: If Bill Street could talk, yeah. You notice that score and like you said, it elevates that movie to new heights. Like I, I'm literally getting chills thinking about the horn runs. And, yeah. Oh my god. But yeah. anyway, yeah, this you can't ignore how much the score drives the narrative
1: yeah in a lot of ways and yeah. every character has their own theme which is distinct and yeah. and it, it sounds like nine inch nails music but again i love that <laughs> and it it's the perfect tone for the show yeah and my favorite theme is for uh laurie laurie blake I was silk specter 2
0: that is episode
1: three three yeah. okay yeah oh my gosh that's so good yeah we'll play a little bit of it right now that just like the coolest sound ever yeah i love it so yeah well let's go episode by episode starting with episode one the pilot episode titled it's summer and we're running out of ice directed by nicole castle and written by damon lindelof and his team of writers should
0: we start with the history a little bit of history To open it up since that's where the episode opens? Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. I just want to up front say that I'm not a history teacher. So a lot of this just came from Googling and reading a couple articles. But I just wanted to give people an understanding of how the massacre began because we're thrown in to it already happening and you're already seeing the violence and the attack so I just wanted to, again, give the origin of how that came about. So the massacre began on Memorial Day weekend, after basically a, a child, a teenager, 19 year old Dick Rowland was accused of assaulting Sarah Page, who was 17 and, and white, who worked at a building close to Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma. and. To give a little background on Greenwood, it was a community which has been referred to as Black Wall Street that was coined by Booker T. Washington because it was a community of very wealthy Blacks who had basically ownership of the entire town. Property ownership, business ownership, and that obviously made white folks in Oklahoma upset and angry because they saw all of this wealth that didn't belong to them. So this shoe shiner, like I said earlier, Dick Roland, was accused of assaulting Sarah Page and that kind of opened the floodgates to a white mob that completely overran the city. And something that I found really disturbing was that the official report records I think, 36 or 37 deaths. But the actual number is at least 75 to 300 people were killed. Mm -hmm. And the missing bodies apparently were either, you know, buried in shallow graves or dumped into the Arkansas River. That was very close. So there are still competing reports of how many people were actually killed. But obviously, it was extremely traumatic and the community was completely raised. Yeah. Completely gone. Um, I also wanted to mention uh, an author that I've mentioned before who does a lot of writing on um, reparations and that ties into this story very directly. Um, and I've mentioned him before when we talked about if Bill Street could talk, but his name is Tonahisi Coates. So I just wanted to say if anyone wants to read further about reparations, which we'll talk about a little bit in yeah. this episode because of
1: red for Red-furation. red
0: forations. Yeah, um, I just wanted to mention his name because he does a lot of writing on that, and it ties into the massacre so anyway i think i hit all the
1: points yep yeah so this episode opens up right with that Middle event yeah eight. and we follow a young will reeves who shows up as a hundred year old man later on in the episode
0: 106 something like that or sure like, oh well, 100 yeah I yeah be
1: 100. and you're just thrown right into it and i remember just being like oh crap this is an intense way to start out the show i mean It was a massacre, and white people in Ku Klux Klan uniforms just went out in the street and shot black people. And a real-life fact was that a couple pilots dropped bombs on the black businesses as well. So, like, the town was completely destroyed. And then, right after that, we cut to present day, so uh, 2019 in the story. Almost 30 years since the events of the graphic novel. And then... After that insanely intense scene, we get another hardcore scene right after that where it's a normal police stop. So a police officer pulls over a white guy in a truck and he's carrying something in the back of the truck and the police officer is wearing a mask. Whoa. A m two years before the pandemic? Oh, No, a year before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's two years now, but (laughs) I forgot we've been in the pandemic for two years. Um, Yeah, in a mask, all police officers wear masks now because three years ago, there was a coordinated attack by the 7th Calvary. That's Oklahoma's version of the... I think it's like an offshoot. Yeah, an offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan Klan in Oklahoma in the story. The White Knight was a coordinated attack where a bunch of 7th Cavalry members went to the homes of police officers and massacred them and shot them. So now police officers wear masks to protect their identity. And yeah, so this scene and the police stop, uh, the police officer discovers that this guy in the truck has a Rorschach mask, which is what the 7th Cavalry wear, and he can't use his firearm because police officers need to ask permission in this universe and then he gets shot and you think he's dead but he actually survives but yeah so right off the bat you get the tulsa massacre and then you get a shooting
0: a police shooting against a police officer yeah
1: rather than a black police officer too that's important because the guy's in the seventh Cavalry, so that's a big a big deal so right away when i was watching that i'm like man is this show gonna be like this but it's all set up for mm-hmm. what happens next. And then we're introduced to our main character.
0: Sister Knight.
1: Yes, Sister Knight. Oh my God, Angela Abar, played by our favorite, one of our favorites, Regina King. Uh, she won the Emmy for this <sighs>
0: How could role. she not?
1: Yeah, I oh know, she's gosh. incredible. And her chief of police, her best friend, who also went through the white night is Judd Crawford played by Don Johnson of Knives Out and Django Unchained fame. Uh, he he rose to prominence in the show Miami Vice in the oh, eighties. Yeah. You know,
0: you know what? Now that I'm thinking back to this episode when there's a flashback to right after all of the police officers are attacked on White Knight, I should have known that there was something was up with Judd because yeah. The only thing that had been injured was his arm. And I feel like... If you're trying to stage the fact that you're not a part of something violent, you always get shot in the arm.
1: Right. They. <laughs>
0: Isn't that a total, like...
1: They set compliment? it up. Yeah, that is a, a literal cliche. Yeah. yeah, and we
0: just watched that happen in Search Party, too. Like, it right. happened. I feel like, you know, it's like a leg injury or like an appendage injury. Yeah. So you should always, be, always be suspicious of the person that gets shot in the arm. That's all I'm right. saying.
1: <laughs> but right off the bat, the world building in this show is incredible and mm-hmm. It helps if you've read the graphic novel, but it's not necessary. It it only enhances the story if you read the graphic novel.
0: I think to enjoy the graphic novel more. Yes. Watch this because I as I as stated like, you know, full disclosure, I was not a huge fan of the graphic novel. But the fact that Damon Lindelof and the writers were able to pull what they did out of the book makes me at least respect the book more because those ideas were in there. Yeah. So this is really helping me like go back to the book and appreciate what I, little things that I missed, like, you know, and things that I probably didn't quite understand the meaning of. and. Sure. So yeah. Oh my gosh, this is amazing.
1: (laughs) So yeah, at the end of the graphic novel, it's alluded to that Robert Redford, the actor, is going to be elected president and Adrian Veidt set that up, by yeah. the way, like it was all part of his plan. And so now in the show in present day, Robert Redford has been president for a while, just like Nixon had uh, beforehand. And instead of reparations, he installed Redford Rations.
0: Well, I actually thought that that was a racist term. I, I thought that he instituted reparations, but the 7th cavalry and white oh, radicals no. had...
1: No, their their um, official name is Red for racial Oh, really? Yeah, is, that, is that said in the show? It's said in the Black History Tulsa Museum, it said, yeah.
0: I, wait, but in the first episode when Angela comes to her son's...
1: Right, the, the, the son reacts that way because that kid is assuming that they couldn't pay... For it on their own, that just because they're black, they needed a handout to get her business started. Oh,
0: I thought he was upset that he just used that term rather than saying reparations.
1: Right. I I I see what you're saying. Yeah. See,
0: this is. I'm sorry. I apologize to the listeners because I am catching up still. Well, I'm. Hey,
1: I'm here to help. To catch you up. Yeah. But yeah, so installed this governmental uh, apology, I guess, monetary campaign where it's an incentive to ancestors and black Americans to move back to Tulsa. And if they do, they'll get paid by the government to live there and to start businesses. Subsidized. Yes.
0: Sub- excuse me. Subsidized for returning. Not yes. Not necessarily just like...
1: Yep. Exactly. So it's the, this u- universe's version of reparations reparations, just for the town of Tulsa. So that's set up. Also, Squidfall is set up, yeah. which is my favorite detail. And I'm curious what you think about that and what you think who is behind that all. Because as we discussed, the end of the graphic novel, Adrian Veidt tricks the world by dropping a mutant squid on Manhattan, killing three million people. The whole world thinks that it's an actual alien and drops all their problems and unites. That creates world peace. Yeah, so now in this 30 years later, it's hinted at that every so often there's a squid fall where the sky goes gray and it rains for about, you know, 30 seconds. These little tiny squids. Baby
0: squids are so- Yeah. It's so so sad that they die. Yeah.
1: So that they rain these little squids and they die within 30 seconds and disintegrate. So, Laura, (sighs) what do you think is going on there?
0: Okay. My hypothesis is that the squids are another decoy. And I'm pretty sure that Lady True, who comes in in episode four, is using that as another decoy to like
1: maintain the illusion yeah like
0: maintain the illusion that the squid was from outer space and totally extraterrestrial rather than yeah and a plot an interdimensional yeah right rather than an interdimensional plot by adrian veit yes that's what i think
1: yeah gotcha Cool. Yeah. So that's another thing where it's just a minor inconvenience for everyone. When squid fall happens, they just need a pull to the side and put on their windshield wipers and mm-hmm. brush away all the squids and then just go on with their life. So that I love that connection I love that to too. That's really smart. to the graphic novel. Because what
0: the movie, I think, misinterpreted or missed was that they replaced that with an actual bomb right so yeah which
1: is so much lamer and again Zack snyder misses the point but we're not talking about his movie well actually
0: okay i have one comment about that the more i thought about it because i i feel like i i didn't present my best thoughts in the last episode about watchmen but my thought about the snyder movie was that he took everything on the surface of the movie and sort of plastered it on the screen. He took it very literally. And the more I watched this, which took everything basically metaphorically from the book Mm -hmm. and deepened it, it almost makes me more upset at the movie that he just took... It's an interesting practice or exercise to see him do that because graphic novels literally have the word graphic in the name and so I understand where he would want to take everything very literally by what was on the page but it suffered so much and if he had pulled out what the book was really trying to highlight about radicalism and morality and stuff like that I think he would have ended up with a uh, something closer to this which really nails what the book was trying to say. And, and and probably doesn't even say as well as the show. So sorry, that yeah. was just a little thing that sort of popped into my head as I'm watching this and enjoying it so much more than the movie.
1: Well, one of the last things I'll say about episode one is that there's an in-universe show called American Crime Story. Right. Where, oh, sorry, American Hero Story. Yeah. It, uh, American Crime, I think, is a real show, but it's a dramatization of the Minutemen, which were the first set of heroes in this universe, yeah, and the show within a show, American Hero story, looks exactly like a Zack Snyder movie. Stylized from exactly from the slow mo yeah. violence to the um, extreme gore, yeah. yeah, to the the sexy, I guess, pornographic view of violence and how, and and that's the whole thing where Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. They were kind of showing the gray area of superheroes where, yes, they were delivering justice on one hand, but they also, their ethics were gray. It's Mm. like, should they be doing what they were doing? Is this violence perpetrated against the aggressor's moral? Right. And so the show, I think, is a wink at Zack Snyder showing, like, this is what his version of Watchmen was. Clearly the wrong thing. Clearly something that missed the point. Because, again, violence, I mean can be cool and it is cool but there's a scene in episode two and we can kind of transition to episode two where after judd is murdered at the end of the episode they drive to an rv camp called nixonville uh which is a bunch where housing a bunch of people affiliated with the right wing side and you know confirmed racists and they go and they just they want to know who killed judd and if they don't get any answers they just went out and they, they just beat the shit out of everyone yeah. and in a way it's satisfying to see racists and nazis yeah get the, the shit trash. shit kicked out of them but at the same time it's like those are police officers and it's like you know if the world r- worked like that it would be kind of chaos so but, it's like yeah, the moral yeah. the morals of that are are left up to your interpretation
0: right and it is scary to think that the world does work like that for a lot of types of groups of people. Yes. And something that I found almost this is how I love how they play with morality, because in one way, you see how the police have reformed at least to the point where society is so violent in this area, because it's also very clearly stated that the, this Tulsa area is the only place where police are allowed to wear masks to protect their identity. Yeah. This isn't a national law. There's a senator who's trying to expand this law yeah. to the state of Oklahoma, and then people are speculating that he'd like to expand it nationally. But it's only in this particular place because of the racial history, right. racial violence history. And because of the white night, And because of the white night right, yeah. which is like tied in, right? But the thing that's scary is that you're on the side of the police officers in that way. But at the same time, what have we just experienced over and over again and in recent news about how police officers are already primed to protect each other by like not reporting over violent reactions to things and In that way, a lot of police officers don't face consequences for unnecessary violence. And so if you apply that idea of like, sure, police officers' identities need to be protected, but at the same time, most, I don't know, maybe it's not fair to say most, but a lot of police officers would use that very negatively. They would leverage that power to abuse people. So I love how they play with that morality.
1: Right. Yeah. And it just presents a very interesting moral argument that the graphic novel also presents our superheroes above the law um, and kind of hinting at our cops above the law. So that's kind of a one to one comparison there. But yeah, so the episode one ends with Judd Crawford hanging from a noose. He's introduced in the show watching uh, Oklahoma, or Black Oklahoma, as right. he calls it. And the song that you first see Judd in is, uh, the song, the lyrics are, Poor Judd is dead, is that lyric.
0: Yeah, cause So Judd is the main character in Oklahoma.
1: Right. right. And then you see the Judd character in the show, Don Johnson, and then the first words, Judd is dead. And you're like, oh, crap. And later on in the episode, after the violence against the police officer happens, then he invokes this law that allows all the police officers to use their guns. Because, again, in this universe, you need to ask permission before you go on so cases.
0: gun can be unlocked
1: for yep. you to... Right. And one of the guys says, "Your Chief, you're making a mistake. And he goes, well, it's my funeral. And it's kind of an, another hint that he's going to die by the end of the episode. And... The crazy thing is the marketing for the show put Regina King and Don Johnson as the main characters, suggesting that they were going to be in the show throughout all nine episodes. So to see Don Johnson, again, who's having a resurgence of his own, dead at the end, that was completely unexpected. So I I was surprised. Uh,
0: Well, another way that that line, Judd is dead, is a little bit foreshadowing is that you learn in episode is it two should we move on to episode yeah three? two that he is involved with the seventh cavalry and that so it's also sort of this like tone of like he's morally dead
1: yeah so episode two is titled martial feats of comanche Horsemanship, uh, also directed by Nicole Castle, written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Cuse. So, in episode two, Will Reeves, who's the old man in the wheelchair, who was the kid at the beginning in the Tulsa Massacre, he says that there are skeletons in Judd's closet. So, Angela goes over to Judd's house, where Judd's wife is, and she's kind of having a little wake of sorts mourning Judd the funeral hasn't happened yet and then Angela fakes passing out like faints and then uh, she's housed up in Judd's room and the wife's like oh I hope you get better and like oh they ha- have their little expo- exposition there and then when the wife leaves Angela checks out Judd's closet and finds a clan uniform that belonged to his dad and we don't know that and grandpa
0: we don't know that it belonged to his family.
1: I think, yeah, right. It's, I th- the... it's
0: hinted at because when he's getting dressed in his uniform after the cop is shot in the first episode, he there's a picture of him and his father that would match the time period of his father having been a racist police right. officer in Tulsa. So like that was something that stuck out a little bit, but I never would have never would have realized that
1: visual language visual storytelling right. it's all there yeah. yeah and so she brings that uniform back to will reeves yeah and he's and she's just like you said he had skeletons in his closet well i looked in his yeah. fucking closet yeah. oh my god and then yeah. will was like oh, I didn't mean literally. This was in his closet. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and he's like, did, did you put this there? And he's like, I'm in a wheelchair. I can't walk upstairs. Right. But um, she's
0: like, yeah, but you told me that you ha- you hanged him. And yeah. he kept saying like, oh, and right when we meet him too, he said, do you think I could lift 260, 206 pounds or something like that? Yeah, over my head. Over my head. Yeah. And she's like... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why the fuck would I care or something like that? Yeah.
1: yeah. So that's kind of episode two they're all re the whole police force is reacting to judd's death and now like kind of a war has started between the seventh calvary and the police force that includes sister knight angela abar and then also we haven't talked about tim blake nelson who plays uh, looking Looking Glass, glass which is the one of the coolest Visuals in the entire show. Yeah. He's just a man wearing this uh, silver reflective mask. Fun fact mm. I haven't revealed this until this moment that mask is CGI real. Really? So well,
0: I've wondered so is it a is it a green? Yeah, it's
1: green. Yeah
0: sock. Okay. Yeah. So, I was wondering about that
1: Yeah, cuz to get that effect cuz you know everything is reflected because it's basically a mirror, yeah. right? thus the name looking glass right. Yeah It's, yeah, so during production, he would just wear this green sock over his head, and what you're seeing on the show is a visual effect.
0: This is a really minor thing, but I really appreciate how the Rorschach masks, which is the same thing, basically a white sock with the Rorschach design in the show, that doesn't move. It really bugged me in the movie how that moved because it was a cool visual but the point was it was like it was like real life so like how could that have happened? Oh, how could the mechanics have worked if that was in real life?
1: I think I think there's one line in the graphic novel where it like he explained that it was a technology that came out of Dr. Manhattan. It was like a new type of ink.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I just kind of like how it's like realistically every single person has a different, different Rorschach design on their mask. Well, this. it's I very just, I, I like that. It's
1: very apropos for racists,
0: right? Klansmen
1: and, and to just have these dirty masks with like what looks like, I guess, dirt on that, them. That's
0: exactly what it evokes. And the thing that's interesting too is in the first episode when the officer pulls over the guy who's speeding. It looks like a dirty rag. Like, I didn't understand why the cop noticed it when the guy opened his glove compartment, because it looks like Uh a dirty white rag. Yeah. But after I realized what the significance was, I was like, that definitely evokes white supremacist clan symbolism.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. And, And we don't really learn why the 7th Calvary are wearing... Rorschach masks until episode five is kind of when it's revealed right. um, Yeah, so we'll get to that that ties directly into the graphic novel now episode three This is laurie blake's episode. I say blake because that's how she goes by in the show Blake was her father's name aka comedian. Yeah, the comedian yeah. and she's now 30 years older Played by Gene Smart, the wonderful Gene Smart. And yeah, episode three is titled She Was Killed by Space Junk, written by Damon Lindelof and Lila Biak. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And then directed by Stefan Williams, a pretty prominent television director.
0: This episode is incredible. The directing style is a little bit different, you can tell. Yeah. But the way that they introduce Lori is amazing. And, and you can tell again, like we don't have too much to tie to the graphic novel. Like we're doing a little bit less analyzing between the two, just because it's, it's not quite an adaptation. It's more of a continuation.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: The visual storytelling and the storytelling they do through the script is so subtle and so brilliant. Like If you know from the graphic novel that Lori's father is the comedian, your appreciation for the fact that she opens her episode by telling a joke, and that consistently, it sort of becomes a motif that she is a no bullshit character. Nothing gets past her. However, when she becomes a little bit sentimental, because she's talking to Dr. Manhattan, who is her sort of ex-lover, she's... Telling him this joke, which kind of, again, gives her, you a little more depth to her because she, I think, from the graphic novel, you gather that she wants to get to know her father, even after she finds out that he raped her mother or tried to rape her mother. So, like, that little bit of her guard being let down around her ex, she spends that time telling a joke is brilliant. Yeah. Like, so, right. I mean, yeah, I love this and it's a episode dark too.
1: You're right, exactly. It's
0: oh, it's so good.
1: So this episode is framed around Laurie calling, quote unquote, calling Doctor Manhattan on Mars. So since the events of 1985, it is believed that Doctor Manhattan is on Mars doing stuff and and just you know.
0: From the graphic
1: novel. Yeah, right. farting around. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's where everyone thinks in the show Dr. Manhattan is. And around the world and in Tulsa, there are these little booths where you can call Dr. Manhattan and leave a message on Mars. And, you know, maybe he, he'll he hear it. Maybe he won't. It's uh, a
0: little derivative of Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a little bit like a TARDIS because it's blue and it glows and you go in and can make calls. And, yeah. Yeah, definitely so tardis
1: the beauty of that framing device is that it's a way to serve exposition. It, right. You know, Laurie, through her joke, tells the story of the graphic novel. Yeah. Of how there are these superheroes who couldn't stop Adrian Vite, who dropped a squid on Manhattan, and even though he killed three million people, he saved the world. And now these superheroes who failed need to live with the fact that that they inadvertently also killed 3 million people and they can't tell anyone.
0: And in this joke, they're all dead. They've gone to the pearly gates of heaven and they have to basically petition God. He asks them a question. Why do you deserve to come in to heaven? Yeah. And they have to defend their actions. And one of the questions that God asks is how many people did you kill? Yeah. (laughs) And you know, Again, based on the book, everyone has a defense of, well, I created peace. Yeah, I killed three million people, but I stopped further people from dying, all these things. But eventually they're all sent to hell. Yeah. And then the joke that wraps back around is that she's the little girl who threw a brick up. There's sort of like a, a side joke. And she ends up like killing God, which is also another way of saying like, nothing matters (laughs) right which is incredible i mean i just it's such a good such a good joke
1: yeah so we learn in the 30 years since the graphic novel the end of the graphic novel the the events of the graphic novel that laurie has joined the fbi and now she
0: she's hung up her cloak
1: yeah hung up her cloak and and hunts masked vigilantes and yeah the episode, the greatest bit of character development. You know, her whole character summed up in one line. She stops a masked superhero uh, by setting him up um, at a bank. You know, she sets up this fake bank heist and then shoots the superhero... Three times in the back and then as she's leaving the bank one of the police officers goes How'd you know that his armor would stop the bullets yeah. and she doesn't say anything meaning that she clearly didn't know She was shooting to kill yeah. and because she <laughs> can because you know mass vigilantes are outlawed So she can't it's and also
0: fun to watch her have just enjoy herself yeah. in that whole thing like the only time you see her sort of release her no bullshit attitude is when she's like pointing her gun at the bank teller, and she's like, give me your fucking money! And she, like, loses it. But she's having so much fun. Like, when you realize that she's an FBI agent, just, she didn't have to do that. Like, she didn't have to work that hard to set up this masked superhero, but she loves it.
1: It's a perfect continuation of her character because from the events of the graphic novel, 30 years later, she's become this jaded, just, you know, sardonic sarcastic sneering lady really smart who is just who's smart because she was smart to begin with but now she is just completely over it and wants to stop all masked superheroes in general and there's that great line so at judd's funeral she meets angela abar for the first time and she goes hey what's the difference between a police officer and a masked soup And Angela says, I I don't know, like, you know, I I retired, I'm actually not on the police force anymore. Lying, because she really is still, and then Lori goes, I don't know, you tell me. Mm -hmm. And kind of hinting at that she knows Angela is Sister Knight, it's crazy. But the crazier thing happens right after that when one of the Seventh Calvary members literally digs onto the graveyard cemetery site where Judd is being buried and straps a self-detonating bomb to his chest. You mentioned a senator earlier. That's Sen- Senator Joseph Keane mm-hmm. who you were onto. I was onto. sus. Yeah, he yeah,
0: was sus. To
1: be fair, the show makes it kind of yeah. clear that he's sus uh, right away. But yeah. yeah, that's if readers of the graphic novel Keene. that's a nod to the Keene Act which outlawed all superheroes in 1977. Uh, this is that senator's Grandson,
0: that's so smart.
1: Who, yeah, it's either his son or his grandson who did the opposite of that, but he secretly has ulterior motives, but his act put all police officers in masks. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, his father outlawed masks. Senator Keene brought masks back to Tulsa. He wants to bring masks everywhere, but, again, in episode 5, we learn that he is in cahoots with the 7th Calvary, which is insane
0: also i just wanted to note that it's fun to see this actor james wolk in something else because the only other thing i've ever seen him in is Mad Men, and he's kind of the most annoying <laughs> character in Mad Men of all time his name is bob but it's fun to see him in something else because do you know if he's been in anything
1: i i don't this is the only thing i've seen him in but he's great he has he plays the perfect pretty boy yeah. sycophant Politician, totally. who you can tell immediately that it's all an act, like yeah. all his pleasantries and the way his demeanor is all for political gain, because yeah. he's he's one of those types of politicians.
0: Well, and the fun thing is that he isn't what he seems in Mad Men too. He plays a very similar character where he's writing that sort of I'm in the background, don't, yeah, don't pay attention to me, but I'm pulling some strings a little bit, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, so. He's great. I like him in this a lot. So yeah, the, the 7th Cavalry member with a bomb strapped to his chest asks to take Senator Keene hostage or else he'll blow everyone at the funeral up. Demands. He yes. Ask. Yeah, Right. He's not like, please his come friends. with me. Yeah. And then supposedly all their guns are taken away at, at the front gate. But mm-hmm. Lori was secretly hiding a gun, shoots the seventh Calvary member in the head. Right
0: in the head. The calls blows him away.
1: Calls his bluff, but the bomb is actually a bomb. Angela, being the keen superhero that she is, throws the uh Calvary member's body into the grave plot where Jud's coffin was about to go and then she pushes the coffin over the bomb saves everyone which
0: makes you feel a lot better after you know that judd was in cahoots with the seventh calvary <laughs> well
1: we don't know that well i guess we do kind of know that yeah. he's yeah something's up but. but
0: then and then at the end of that whole thing where angela has saved everyone's life basically laurie looks up and she's like sorry like they never actually go to the trouble of hooking it up to their heart i was like uh, she like she's yeah. like doesn't she's like basically yeah, she was says like, thank you but she's like oh, whatever like
1: <laughs> but also it's what angela does is kind of confirmation that right. she's more than she seems she's yeah. not just a baker now yeah. she yeah so yeah and that episode it ends with a great interaction t- between Lori and angela where Lori confronts her and says basically i know your sister Knight what was in Judd's closet and Angela's like I don't know what you're talking about and Lori's like you know cut the crap. I I talked to Judd's wife and you don't seem like the fainting type so I know you (laughs) snooped around there. You were the last person in the room. The writing in that scene is just incredible. All the dialogue is perfect and yeah so that's Lori has a wonderful episode and yeah it ends with the car from the previous episode that was scooped up that had Will Reeves in it, right. dropping right right in front of her from the sky. Yeah. It's kind of maybe it's Doctor Manhattan or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's Lady True. Who knows? But well, speaking, we
0: catch Lori laughing at it, which kind of also goes to the whole. She's the comedian's daughter. Like yeah. that's her first reaction is just to like uncontrollably laugh at the ridiculousness of the. Statement, I think is what she's laughing at. Yeah. Because she has so much disdain for the antics of these super humans, hu- superheroes that are just humans. I think yeah. that's what she finds really funny. And so a car dropping out of the sky, she's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like just stop with the theatrics yeah you know like work the way that us fbi agents work just like do your job and get to the point rather than these theatrics that's what i think she's laughing at which is great it's just so great
1: yeah well now we move on to episode four lady true's introduction she has a great
0: incredible intro
1: yeah yeah it starts with a complete story of this couple who are selling eggs in this undisclosed farmhouse. yeah, farmhouse location. And then we meet Lady True, who offers to buy their location in exchange for a child that she created from this couple's real-life eggs and sperm uh, in her own facility. She's a trillionaire and yeah, buys their house via a baby. Now, I have a question. What do you think is the object or thing that drops from the sky on that plot of land?
0: I have an idea. I feel like it's Dr. Manhattan returning. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. At first, I thought it was Adrian Veidt, because we haven't really discussed how Adrian's storyline is interspersed. Oh, yeah. We'll
1: get to him.
0: But I realized that when he escapes his little pleasure dome... (laughs) He's just on a different planet. So and he's kind of looking at Jupiter. So I don't think that's it. I think it's Dr. Manhattan, but I'm not sure.
1: I don't Interesting. know.
0: But the thing I was going to say about Lady True's intro is that, again, this has nothing to do with the graphic novel. There's no mention of her, her character, nothing like that. But that short story... I was watching that and I actually watched that twice because I couldn't stop the episode after watching episode three. And Mm. I just sort of watched like 15 minutes into the next episode. And then we we restarted it when Danny and I were together, but that could be taken as like the perfect flash fiction. Just stop it where that sort of meteor that, well, whatever it is, it's like a fireball crashes onto their property And they're like, what was that? And she's like, it's mine. Because they just signed their property away to her. That from minute one to minute like seven or ten or whatever it is. Like that is masterful flash fiction. Yeah. Incredibly well done. It sets up Lady True's character. Uh, In fact, it sets it up in two ways. Because she asks the couple, what do you know about me? What have you heard about me? And they share their details. And she's like, first of all, I'm a trillionaire, not a billionaire. Second of all, it's not just a clock, what she's building downtown, all this stuff. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you get her character. You get her relationship with her daughter, which is fairly adversarial. Or at least very controlling of her daughter. You understand that she's masterfully manipulative
1: intelligent
0: and extremely intelligent gets what she wants yeah major
1: major adrian veid parallels oh Yeah. yeah
0: definitely yeah super rich obviously trillionaire yeah like
1: and yeah it's
0: technologically advanced yeah i i mean just brilliant character development
1: hinted at that it was her big aircraft carrier that picked up will reeves at the end of episode two Mm -hmm. uh suggested and there's that great scene when lady true and angela are talking vietnamese kind of a secret code because laurie's there and she doesn't know vietnamese you
0: assume she doesn't does she know though
1: i don't know You tell me. No, she's really smart. Um, Right, yeah, she's smart too. But yeah, clearly Lady True left these pills in the car that she dropped for Angela. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she knows, confirms in that moment that Will, who Angela finds out is her grandpa in this episode, yeah. Will, her grandpa, left these pills for her, and that'll come into play in episode 6, which we're about to watch, but you haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Lady True is such a great character, as all these characters are. Again, it's a complete creation of the show, not tied to the graphic novel, I believe, in any way.
0: The other thing that I think is brilliant about her character is that the episode... Sets up the extremely sharp contrast between this, you know, salt of the earth couple who are hardworking and, you know, probably don't have a lot of money, even though they have a lot of land. They're property rich, cash poor kind of people who we later learn can't have a child, you know, so they're happy, but they're missing something, you know, versus the trillionaire, big money, big tech scene that's coming into the community and sort of disrupting what's there because there's something to be extracted and yes. even that is sort of a moral question of like why should Lady True be able to come in and even though she offered them five million dollars plus a genetically modified baby I don't know how to best say it yeah but like it's their genetics like yeah it's, it's like it biologically, is
1: biologically it is theirs their baby yeah
0: like that's a pretty great thing to give for their house and their 40 acres or whatever. But like what's the morality of pressuring them to make that decision under 3 minutes? Yeah. Right? Like that's just a really interesting
1: And she even introduction she even jokes world. that if they say yeah. no, she'll kill the baby. And then they're like, "What?" And she goes, "No, of course I'm, I'm not a monster. Kidding. I'll I'll give him to a foster home." But he'll never know where he came from. Kind of an ominous final line. Yeah, so I can't wait to see you watch what happens with her character and how there's clearly a plot afoot with her and Will Reeves and with the Millennium Clock, I think it's called, that they're creating. Uh, My favorite line from this episode is Lori asks what the clock is and what it does Mm -hmm. and then Lady True's daughter says, it tells time. Yeah. Yeah, and you're like, wait a second. Yeah. And yeah, they are saying that this millennium clock is the first wonder of the new world. Not yeah, yeah not the eighth wonder, the first wonder right. of the new Which world. Which
0: makes me concerned because I feel like if she is Adrian Byte 2.0, she has some kind of like destructive <laughs> ideas of how to start over. <laughs> Maybe. We talk about this in an upcoming episode in Akira. Yeah. We talk about like how. To what extent do you need to restart, sort of push that restart button to create an opportunity for something that's better than what's already there?
1: Yeah. If that makes sense. Like there's a beauty and complete rebirth. Right. A complete empty canvas, but the destruction that came from clearing that canvas...
0: As Adrian Veidt did, d-
1: did. In New York. You know, raises the question, is it worth it? Does that make you a good person? All, all that. Right. Yeah. Stuff. So again, yeah.
0: Moral ambiguity. Exactly. The questions. show
1: does it so well, and yeah, episode four is titled "If you don't like my story, write your own."
0: <laughs> Which honestly, see again, like that's what makes me concerned about Lady True's mm-hmm. ambitions. Yes. I think that she's trying to write her own story. And she's got something that might not be entirely.
1: Oh, Laura, Peaceful. you're you're just on the right track. God, that's such an accurate description of oh, what's oh, happening. No, I'm so um, yeah. So yeah, this episode was directed by Andridge Perec I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Written by Linda Loff and Crystal Henry. So now we're moving on to episode five, my favorite episode of the entire series. Well, I should say I love every episode, but yeah. this one hits the hardest. It's the Looking Glass episode. Tim Blake Nelson should have won an Emmy for this episode alone. He was nominated. He was one of the few actors from the show who were nominated who didn't win uh, wow. an award.
0: Got, who did he lose to? because I, is... I'm
1: not sure to be honest, but he oh gosh So this is the backstory of Looking Glass episode and we learned that he was in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey the night of November 2nd, 1985 when Vite dropped the squid mm-hmm. on New York. And he survived because he was in a a funhouse betwixt frames of glass Mm -hmm. and the glass. is his name? Yep, Looking Glass. And yeah, and now he has this deep-seated trauma, obviously, from this event. And that's even said in the graphic novel that even if the squid didn't kill you, the psychic blast uh, drove people insane, and people still wake up with nightmares of.
0: Let's quickly explain the psychic blast because that's not something that I understood from the book. The squid isn't what killed people. It yes. was the psychic blast that the squid sent out yeah. that exploded people's brains.
1: Yeah, that it omitted as it was dying, because <laughs> this is so insane. So in the novel, Vite, as he was constructing the squid, He cloned the brain of a psychic medium and put it in the squid. And then he genetically modified the brain so as it was dying, it would omit a blast of pure energy that would melt the minds of everyone within, you know, a certain mile mile radius. And then everyone outside of that radius who were close enough to the blast they would go insane to varying degrees, right? Mm-hmm. Looking Glass, whose real name in the show is Wade Tillman, he's a special circumstance because he was, you know, the blast was protected by waves, but he still has intense trauma just being in the epicenter of it all, seeing everyone around Walking
0: him. Walking out of this funhouse, yeah. yeah, and everybody's dead. Dead, I, yeah,
1: because yeah. that's... That's kind of the dark beauty of that part of the graphic novel and then of the show is that the squid is a nuclear bomb allegory, but it doesn't cause destruction. It just causes people to fall down and they're, to bleed from the ears and nose as their bla- brains insane. rush out. Yeah. yeah, So it's it's pretty hardcore, it's but yeah, this episode is heartbreaking because you see this man who you think at first is kind of this one-dimensional kooky conspiracy nut type of
0: and kind of a sidekick yeah he's set up as judd's sidekick which doesn't give him a lot of dimensionality until this episode
1: absolutely and and you know we meet him an episode earlier we see his little bunker that he lives in it's very much like an apocalypse type bunker yeah
0: symbolic of someone who's kind of a you know apocalypse nut
1: yeah but you realize that he wears this mask because it's reflectatine is right. the material and it would reflect against any potential future uh squids big mm-hmm. squids that send out psychic blasts so he wears that because he can because of the, the keen act but it's also security for him so he wears it at home yeah, too when he sleeps he never takes off mask so to speak
0: and he also sews reflected teen into his hats too so when he's not masked he still has the like brain protection right which in itself is kind of nothing because yeah you know there aren't alien squids
1: right exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah Yeah, so it's just devastating too and it's a perfect metaphor for PTSD and yeah. trauma that lingers. You can't just get over it. it. It sits with you. And my favorite scene is when he's he does all the test drills in that yeah. um, EDS machine, which is extraterrestrial like security defense right. systems, and yeah, the alarm malfunctions, and he says like, "I've been performing over five hundred practice drills on this unit, and it has never acted like this before." And the guy's like, "Sir, we only recommend doing one practice drill every six weeks." And he's like, "Gosh darn it, send me a new <laughs> unit and overnight it. I don't yeah. care how much it costs." So yeah. yeah, you just Poor guy. feel yeah. for him. And on the side, organizes these support groups for Mm -hmm. people who are either linked to the November 2nd attack or... Have generational trauma from it. Exactly. And the episode just gets more and more devastating as he meets a woman from the group. They go out to a bar and uh, they're flirting. And as as she's leaving, she's like, I'm going to call a friend. Like, you, you... call a friend as well to drive you home because you're drunk and my favorite line from this episode is as she's leaving he says to no one i don't have any friends and you're like yeah "Yeah," because the closest thing he had to a friend was Judd, who's dead and who he didn't know was racist until it was too late so that's another devastating blow to him that his one and only friend is dead and was racist and then now exactly and then you could say sister knight was his friend, but, again, he doesn't know Angela Abar. He only knows... Oh, wait, no, he does...
0: She gives him a hard time, too. Like, she calls him a freak sometimes, and she's like, you're just... You're like, you're so weird, Yeah, you're a nut. Yeah, Yeah, like, you know, he's he's a little bit of a nut, but
1: not everyone
0: knows that he was at Ground Zero,
1: almost. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll amend that. So, Wade knows who Angela is, but they're not really friends. friends, They're co-workers their colleagues yeah. um but yeah realizes that the woman gets a ride from someone in the same truck from episode one that guy who shoots the police officer so he follows this truck to the seventh cavalry's base in an abandoned mall and that's where he realizes it was all a trap they were bringing yeah. him in and we see finally senator joseph Keen behind is
0: the rorschach mask
1: yeah and is with them and seventh calvary, right, seventh calvary and explains that he and judd were there as plants in tulsa to keep the peace between the calvary and police officers but they're involved and then he shows him the most devastating piece of media of all time which is the footage that Vite gave to robert redford you president know robert Re- redford. president Ro- robert redford what like seven years after the attack to show like i knew this was going to happen i planned this this is
0: it's all me it it was
1: all a creation and yeah that is that moment for someone's whole world the whole trauma to be proven that to be fake and to be nothing and yet we learn why the uh seventh calvary wear rorschach masks rorschach the character in the graphic novel wasn't outright racist i could Say, but a lot of his ideals were right wing and uh, kind of yeah radical, associated with white conservatives, Christian, right, right? yeah. Like he he, he he views the world very much in black and white terms, and if you're not pure, then you're completely filthy and you're nothing. Like a passage, one of the first passages in the book is Rorschach saying. The city is dying of rabies. Is the best I can do to wipe random flecks of foam from its lips? Never despair. Never surrender. I leave human cockroaches to discuss their heroin and child pornography. I business elsewhere with a better class of person. So, not outright racist, but intense conservative views. And he was a frequent patron of the New Frontiersman, which in the universe was this fox news alex Quivalent. jones equivalent yeah. newspaper and he ends so the novel ends with the new frontiersman picking up rorschach's journal from the crank file and you don't know if it's going to be published or not we learn from the show that it was published in the newspaper and also published as a book on its own but it was dismissed as pure conservative crazy right. talk which is something that you predicted and something that you said of like why Doctor Manhattan needed to kill Walter Kovacs in the first place because no one would believe him. That's kind of you were kind of vindicated in that sense because he published this in the New Frontiersman, and yeah, it was dismissed by everyone outside of that circle.
0: Walter Kovacs is Rorschach, just to correct. Yeah. Yeah. Make that
1: link. Yeah. 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 The reason they wear rorschach mask is because the seventh Cavalry are the type of people who read the new frontiersman yeah. but on top of that they are funded and led by joseph Keene, who was given the tape what like once he became a senator he was given the information that Vite orchestrated the squid attack on november 2nd so they have two so what's so cool to see is that so in that Video that they uh, send out, the threat video in episode one, when they're threatening the cops, right. that we're they gonna say like, TikTok, yeah, TikTok, tuck They say passages from Rorschach's journal, uh-huh. but parts of it are changed and warped to fit their racist oh, of course. agenda, yeah. which is so per like, which is a perfect metaphor for what happens with today's so, yeah, media. We can shit on Fox News. For hours, but I think the dangerous thing about Fox News, from my opinion, my liberal perspective, is that Sometimes you can have the really hardcore nuts who can twist that information Even more so than it's it's already glorified and already flirts with the truth And for Klan members to take that and to be emboldened by that Mm -hmm. And to feel unified by that. It, it's a perfect allegory for what the 7th Calvary would do. Yeah. They would view Rorschach as a god because he is, on one hand, a hardcore white conservative. But on the other hand, he was right. Like, they are vindicated by the footage that Joseph Keane right. shows them. Yeah. So he's like a god to them it's kind of a funny parallel to like QAnon mm-hmm. today because what they believe in is like super crazy and obviously fake but this is an instance where the seventh calvary believe in it's like oh shit it actually happened and you can see joseph Keane manipulating them right with this real life information
0: yeah, yeah. well the interesting thing is that that, see that, and that's what made me really concerned when I started seeing that they had a kernel of truth that then they were able to use to vindicate their other extremist views. Because I was like, if a white supremacist were watching this show, they could try to assign evidence to any one of their conservative views and say, like, see, this is why I'm right about everything. Right. But I'm interested to see where the show takes it from here, because another thing that I struggled with was I was sort of failing to make the connection between where they were coming from conservatively, extremistly, from what they're getting out of like Rorschach's ideas to the racism, because I didn't quite see where I didn't quite see that. Rorschach was racist. I didn't quite see that in the graphic novel. However, I think it's really smart to continue that line of reasoning and say that one of the things that Rorschach fails to understand is systematic racism. He Mm -hmm. fails to understand why a lot of people of color end up forced into things like prostitution and poverty Because of systematic racism. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem with seeing things on this black and white spectrum versus how morality can be very difficult to tease out, it ends up you end up assigning blame incorrectly and then thinking that those kinds of people you start to like group people artificially and saying like those kinds of people are automatically going to be less moral. Than people who are like, you know, part of like high society, which systematically, again, places a lot of white people in that. Yes. Area. So I really like how they continue that line of reasoning and say, like, see all of these like white conservative Christian extremists, they would be primed to read that and feel vindicated while completely ignoring systematic racism, and I think that's another reason why it's really smart to tie this into the Tulsa Massacre because I was actually going to mention this earlier when we were talking about Lady True, about property rights like, one of the reasons people were upset that Black Americans owned that district of Tulsa was because it was interfering with a railroad plan, and the fact that a lot of that property ended up in white hands, white American hands completely supports the idea that systematic racism takes things away from those classes that are systematically pushed down and awards white Americans or like people who are already on the top. So like, it's just a brilliant way. And then these people who have become part of this Rorschach cult are then primed to hate things like the Redford nations because they see that as unfair. Right. But it's not. Like, you know what I... Is that, like, making sense? Am I, like...
1: Yes. No, you're making perfect sense. Yeah. I knew you are going to end that whole speech with you asking if it makes sense because that's typical lore. <laughs> um, that's... Uh,
0: but it just... It primes yes. them to be racist. I, you, I just ra- think that's brilliant.
1: Yes. And I agree with you. To go back, I think... It's brilliant how the 7th Calvary are picking and choosing from Rorschach's manifesto to create their own agenda. Because yes, Rorschach wasn't outright racist in the book, but his views were extreme. And they were posted in the publication that the 7th Calvary read. And then this particular offshoot of the 7th Calvary in Tulsa are led by someone who can confirm what Rorschach is saying. Yeah. So that's why, yeah. yeah.
0: It was so smart to plug that piece of information into an extremist group. Yes. Yeah. Super dangerous, but in that way, they could radicalize them even further and use them as foot soldiers. Exactly. Insane.
1: Yeah, so, so it's smart. like levels upon levels of manipulation. So the 7th Cavalry are manipulating Rorschach's words... But they themselves are being manipulated by Joseph Keen and they were by Judd, who's now dead. But yeah, yeah, so that layers upon layers. But yeah, I I love those type of twists where someone's world is completely just uprooted and everything they believe in is false. And yeah, the arc that Looking Glass goes through in this episode is absurd. That's episode five uh, titled Little Fear of Lightning. Directed by Steph Green, written by Linda Loft and Carly Ray. Now the final character Yep, Carly Ray. Uh, now. <laughs> now finally, Adrian Vite. We learn that Jeremy Irons, who's chilling out in this castle in some land, is Adrian Vite. We learn that in episode three when he writes that letter and he ends with saying his name. Adrian Veidt Yeah. Love Jeremy Irons. He's great. So
0: good.
1: Oscar winner, by the way yeah so this is what lindelof specializes in this absurdist humor i guess you could say he's not lindelof is not a comedy writer he's a drama writer but he puts this absurdist crazy circumstance
0: yeah it's kind of situational situation
1: situations in his shows that are funny because they are so wild they're also funny because you, the viewer, are trying to piece together what's happening and you simply can't until you're given all the information because it's just so unexpected, the things that happen. So
0: it's also it's sorry, it's also funny. The situational humor is funny because it's like self-referential.
1: Yes. And
0: the brilliance in that is that because you're an outsider to this world, even though it's very close to our real earth, it is a parallel universe. So you don't know all the rules. And so, like, the jokes are so funny, but it's like you almost don't quite get them. But I'm sure as soon as he unlocks the secret, and I understand what's going on at the end, even little, I mean, little crumbs I'm, like, picking up. Yeah. But if I watch it again, which I... Almost certainly will. As yeah. soon as we end Great. episode nine I'm Love gonna to re- hear that. I'm gonna rewatch it. But I'm sure as I go back, it's gonna become even funnier because it's self-referential.
1: Oh gosh, I can't wait.
0: I'm so excited. Till
1: you see what happens. But anyway. What what do you think is going on?
0: Okay. Um I feel that Adrian so Adrian has been lifted out of probably by Lady True. This is like this is what I think happened. Lady True found him in his little Antarctica bunker, Little?
1: That's a mansion. Whatever.
0: His bunker in Antarctica. Faked his death, airlifted him, and, like, sequestered him on this planet.
1: Well, he was declared dead because he's been missing for so many years. Oh, but, okay, sure, whatever. But, yeah.
0: so, okay, he's declared dead or whatever, but he's, like, he's now sequestered. I kind of feel like... Well, I don't know. See, I don't know if he's either working with Lady True or she's trying to keep him away from the project. But I think that he's trying to escape his pleasure dome, which is filled with these very prestige (laughs) material-like servants. Yeah. (laughs) And he's going to try to, like, create a situation where he generates a new Dr. Manhattan because I feel like he... He succeeded in getting Dr. Manhattan out of the picture, but I still think that he recognizes the power in an all-seeing, like, all-powerful being that's above morality. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I kind of feel like he's trying to escape, but he's also trying to possibly create another Dr. Manhattan. But I could totally be talking... I mean, I am talking out of my ass, so I don't know <laughs> Yeah. if that's... But it's so funny, like... He's yeah. so cruel to those clones, yeah. but it's so stupidly funny.
1: Yeah, the the Miss Crookshanks and Mr. Phillips, who, yeah, he clones from... He gets these little fetuses out of a lake and, yeah, puts them in this spinning oven. And, yeah, he's clearly doing... He's killing them. And,
0: yeah, well, sacrificing them, because he's yeah. using them as, basically, again, prestige materials so that he can conduct scientific experiments that would kill him surely but he doesn't care about them because they're just clones
1: yeah and we learn at the end of episode five that he's been catapulting or trebucheting yeah. the corpses of these servants up into the atmosphere and it goes through a plane and they fall on this moon of what looks like jupiter yeah. and then he moves the bodies to create this sos for a passing satellite yeah. so that's where we left that's, off yeah. absurd he like, One of-
0: he like cracks their limbs off to like this-
1: Oh it's it's funny, but also macabre yeah. in a way. Yeah. And uh, is that macabre or macabre?
0: Macab. That's how I say it, but I could be wrong. You're I'm right. Usually wrong. I'm wrong.
1: Um, only a nut like Lindelof could write something as absurd yet funny. And the payoff For this, I mean, you are gonna shit your pants. (laughs) Excuse me. Excuse my language, but get your diapers on now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because (laughs) that's what will happen. Yeah, it it it's a great little reprieve from the intensity of the episode so far. Every single episode has had a little vignette. Yeah, a little vignette of Vite Vite. chilling in this a Vite vignette. Yeah, Vite a Vite yet a Vite yet. (laughs) Yeah, and chilling in the castle is little crazy antics, so can't wait to see where that goes.
0: Yeah, but I guess we should wrap. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I'm just gonna say, like, five, or four out of four stars for all of these episodes are so good.
1: It, on top of it just being well-written, it is a spectacle. Yeah. And it's one of the rare spectacles that it's as interesting as it is cool to watch.
0: The transitions are brilliant. Yes. Like almost every transition between scenes there's I have no words for yeah. how smart they are. Just it, smart movie making.
1: This is yeah, a filmmaker's catnip. You can have your cake and eat it too. You get great storytelling great uh nods to the graphic novel easter eggs but also a cool new story mm-hmm. lindelof you did it again i still haven't forgiven you for lost mm-hmm. <laughs> or prometheus but after this and the leftovers i think you've almost redeemed you're, yourself you're on the line yeah
0: <laughs> next project better be flawless cause otherwise...
1: <laughs> I, I think it will i mean he's on a hot streak after this yeah all right well we'll see you next week after we've Watch the whole show. We'll talk about the remaining four episodes. And, oh, I just, I can't wait. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate and review and subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, we really appreciate all your feedback and, yeah. and nice, nice thanks comments. To
0: everybody, yeah, who writes and likes yeah. our stuff. I mean, we're just two nuts recording. Yeah. We don't know anything. We don't know
1: anything. All right. We'll see you on the next one.